Welcome to the Intersection Podcast at Georgia Tech Scheller College of Business. My name is Jasmine Howard, and I'm a second-year full-time MBA here and your host for The Intersection. Today, we have a special Ramblin' Roundtable podcast edition uh, with a focus on financial technology, or what we like to say, fintech. Um, Atlanta is definitely a hotbed of payment processing with big companies like NCR and Fiserv, so not only is it top of mind geographically, it is definitely a field that is growing that our MBA students, our faculty members, and alumni are engaged in. We have a few of those here today. Let's go around the table and see who we have. Hi, my name is uh, Sora Bose. Uh, I am a triple jacket, and uh, my last degree was uh, MBA, evening MBA from Scheller. I graduated in December of 2017, and I've uh, worked in fintech for about two years now uh, with IBM right out of Scheller, and then now with a company called Backbase, which I'll talk about later. Excellent. Thank you for being here. So my name is Ben Rosenthal, like Jasmine. I'm a second-year MBA student. Prior to getting my MBA at Georgia Tech, I spent five years doing software consulting. I interned as a product manager at ADP and got to see some really cool stuff that a legacy fintech company is doing to innovate. And I'm continuing to learn more about product management. Awesome. Thank you. I'm Eric Overby. I'm an associate professor here in the Shella College in the information technology management area. I have a lot of interest in cryptocurrencies and blockchain systems, and I do a fair amount of research in peer-to-peer lending, which I'll talk about later. Awesome. Well, thank you all for being here today. I think this is going to be really exciting, and especially top of mind, not only for current students, but also prospective um, and alumni as well. So to get started, just since this is one of our newer kind of podcast streams, as a reminder, all three of you have brought some kind of topic today. So we'll kind of toss those about, um, discuss, and move throughout everyone's topic before the close of the episode. So to get started, Professor Overby, we'll start with you. Great. So I'll talk a bit about the research that I've done in peer-to-peer lending. Most of it, well, actually all of it with a uh, former PhD student who's now a professor at UT Dallas, Hong Chong Wang. One of the topics, what I'll talk about today is about the effect of of peer-to-peer lending on bankruptcy, uh, personal finance. And the idea that we had was that, so the idea behind peer-to-peer lending is a, a site like Lending Club or Prosper you go there as a, as a borrower, and you create a listing for, I need some money. I need $10,000 or $20,000 for some sort of purpose. And then the peer-to-peer part is that individual investors can then fund part of that loan. So you might give $25, and you might give $100. More and more institutional investors are behaving, are, are, are investing in these loans as well. But the idea behind it is to uh, essentially kind of work a spread. So if you're trying to invest and you want to get some return on your money, you could buy a certificate of deposit and get very low percentage rates. If you want to borrow, you could use credit cards, but that's going to be a 20% interest rate or something like that. So if a, an online peer-to-peer loan can give you maybe a 10% in the middle, the borrower's costs are lower, the investor's returns are higher. And that's the basic premise behind it. So one of the things we're interested in is how do, these, how do people react to getting these loans? And if, essentially, does it, does, it, does it affect their personal finance as measured by do they go bankrupt? <laughs> and and the, the, the optimistic perspective is that that, and what Lending Club, one of the leaders in this space, will tell you is that a lot of people use these loans to restructure debt. So you've got a bunch of credit card debt at 20% interest rate, and you need to pay off that $20,000 debt. You can get a $20,000 online loan at 10% interest rate, and you've just gone from a, a debt burden at 20% to a debt burden at 10%. So that should improve your financial situation, help you overcome financial setbacks, and stave off potential bankruptcy. The pessimistic point of view is that it's a debt trap. It's easy to get the money. You create a listing. You're, 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 it's quick and, and, and frictionless. 
And now you've got not only the 20% uh, $20,000 credit card debt, you've also got $20,000 online debt because you didn't <laughs> necessarily pay one off with the other and you just you just doubled your debt burden and you 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 drive yourself into bankruptcy. So we studied that topic looking at at Lending Club. One of the things that's that's, that's interesting about Lending Club is they got approved in different US states at different times based on regulations and licensing that they had to go through. So essentially, a state like North Carolina doesn't allow Lending Club until, say, 2012, whereas a state like Virginia had it from 2008 forward. So basically, you can use the, 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 uh, the North Carolina as a, as a counterfactual for what would have happened to, uh, to Virginia had Virginia not actually allowed Lending Club mm. because North Carolina didn't do it until later. Virginia did do it. So it's called the difference of differences set up in the econometrics literature. So that's one of the primary tools that we use. And what we find is that when Lending Club is approved in a state, you see an uptick in bankruptcy rates relative to what you would have otherwise seen had they not been, been allowed to, to, uh, to operate in the state. And we kind of get into a lot of reasons for it. We, we do things like we differentiate, differentiate between business bankruptcies and non-business bankruptcies, and the effect is totally for non-business bankruptcies because the dollar amounts we're talking about are $20,000, $30,000. They're really not enough to either prevent or cause a bankruptcy for a business, but they are enough to do it for an individual. So we see it happening there. We see it happening with respect to Chapter 13 versus Chapter 7. Chapter 7 requires a means test. You have to be sufficiently um, poor, effectively, to file Chapter 7. So we see it showing up in Chapter 13, which allows you to, the Chapter 13 code allows you to restructure your debt and, and allows you to kind of hold on to your assets in a different way. So we see it showing up there. And overall, what we conclude is that the effect that we see is partly due to the debt trap mechanism, that people just get overextended financially because the money is easy, they take it, and they can't repay the, we can't repay the debt. There's also a hint of what we call strategic borrowing, which I found to be pretty interesting, where it looks like if somebody knows they're going to go bankrupt or is planning to go bankrupt, they can go get a lending club loan as a means to go bankrupt more effectively. Essentially, what the idea there is that you could pay off secured debt, um, and now you have unsecured debt. So go pay off that car loan. Now you've got the debt in lending club loans, and file bankruptcy on that. And now it's harder to repossess your car because your car's paid for. So there's some of that going on. Or you might just be like, "Look, it's over for me. I'm going to get a lending club loan and go on vacation, spend five thousand dollars going to the Bahamas, and now I'll file bankruptcy." Yeah, just so. really professionally going bankrupt, live in, live in the high life. Right, right. Interesting. Thank you for sharing all that with us. Something that it makes me kind of think of is the reaction, especially given the timing of when you said it launched in different states um, after the financial crisis and kind of the mentality, especially as someone who went through undergrad and then early career in that time is, you know, don't take more money, don't don't ask for more than you can really handle and live within your means. And it sounds like from your research that, that is not what people are doing, um, despite the very recent history of events. Yeah. What do you all think of kind of the tool itself and some consumer engagement with it? Yeah, it's definitely very interesting. Uh, I'm curious, do you, so if, if it's peer-to-peer lending, is that loan backed by anybody? No. So it's, it's all, it's, and that's, that's another interesting thing about the, the strategic borrowing mechanism is that Lending Club is brokering this loan. So the money is coming from the, the investors. It's a platform. You got Lending Club matching investors and borrowers. So the money is put put out, put forward, not by Lending Club, but by the individual investors. And there could be many of them for a given loan. 
So when that loan goes bad, Lending Club doesn't necessarily have a strong incentive to go try to recover the money because it wasn't their money. So it sets up, there's sort of an agency problem here. The individual investors might try to work through Lending Club to try to create some, become a creditor, try to get some of the money back. But it's not, it's not a straight line in terms of where the money came from and who the collection agent might be, which also kind of exacerbates uh, the, the problem. One, one thing I should caveat, Lending Club has implemented various programs in the past few years to try to not necessarily get at this. Our, our research has happened after they implemented these programs, but they have one called direct pay that essentially you get the loan, and instead of them giving you the money, the money goes directly to your creditors to sort of keep you from over overextending yourself. So the money would go from Lending Club straight to the credit card, to the bank, to pay off your credit card debt to try to solve some of this this problem that we that we document. Interesting. Uh, it, it's interesting. I don't know much about this space, but it reminds me a lot of uh, uh, payments. Um, and I work for a global company, so uh, this payment system in Africa that came developed called M-Pesa, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it reminds me of, of that because it's a sort of decentralized way of, of transferring money um, where a traditional bank account is not available or a way to go in a geographic area. So it's interesting. Yeah, and, and the M-Pace example is, is very interesting because of the financial inclusion and the right. ability to, to lift uh, people that have been unbanked and help them have better lives. I should also caveat that we, we, we study a pretty narrow outcome for Lending Club. There are lots of great things Lending Club has done or Prosper right. or these other <laughs> platforms. So I'm not saying they're bad. There's just this one specific area that there appears to be a, a potential problem that I think some of their design changes that they've made can address it. There may also be a need for some regulation. It, I, I, we don't come down strongly on whether it's a regulatory solution or whether it's a market-driven solution where the companies behave differently. But, but your point is, uh, what, what I want to say to that is that there's there are plenty of virtues around right. these as well that we don't we just don't study that particular dependent variable in our in our. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's bankrupt, not bankrupt on the, <laughs> on the outcome there. Yeah, one you kind of already touched on this a little bit, but from. Like if if we at this table helped crowdfund a loan and that person defaults and they run off and go bankrupt, what happens to us? It sounds like Lending Club is not feeling maybe as um, incentivized to go after the bankrupted individual, but as people who participate on the other side of that platform. So I, I don't exactly know. It's a very good question. So you, you might be able to get in line as a creditor and have some of the, in, in the bankruptcy court mm-hmm. and be, be along there with all the other creditors that the bank, that the uh, that are either going to get some amount back in some sort of repayment plan or who are just going to be declared those debts are, are wiped away where you fall in that order um, I don't I don't I don't know yeah it'll be interesting to see how legislation kind of catches up with what technology has enabled there yeah Ben what would you like to to talk about at the round table today yeah so I'd like to talk about how the gig economy which has come up pretty recently, is really revolutionary, revolutionizing how a lot of financial companies are doing business. So just a level set, talking about the gig economy, this is Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Postmates, Instacart, and hundreds of other companies. So people check in on their phone, they do a gig, so they drop somebody off somewhere, they pick somebody off, they deliver food, and when they finish that gig, they get paid right then for that gig. So what's new about this is 
people are getting paid on the spot for work they're doing. Now, if you think about what traditional payroll companies do, they're set up to pay you biweekly, twice a month, you know, maybe in other situations weekly or whatnot. So we're seeing, one, a change in what consumers are expecting because they want their money now. And we're also seeing a technology revolution where payment companies are need to find ways to support this. So over the summer, I interned at ADP, and they're in the process of rebuilding some of their payroll software that has been around for decades. And they're being extremely innovative, and one of the things they're trying to analyze is how can we pay people immediately for the work they do? So if you are a doctor at an urgent clinic and you work an eight-hour shift, how can we get you eight hours of pay right when you leave? If you are working on the floor of a manufacturing plant and you put in your eight hours, how can we get you that payment day of? Uh, So, you know, it's a really challenging situation. There's a lot of complexity to it because you have all these tax situations around federal, state, county, city, and all of these things pile on top of each other. And you look at a place like in Pennsylvania, you can have up to 200 some odd tax codes for one person because they have so many different levels of payroll taxes and different rules, which I did not know about until (laughs) my internship. So ADP is a legacy company, and that's not to say that they're not innovative, but they've been around for over half a century. Another company that's doing something really cool in this space is called Steady. So Steady's a local Atlanta startup. Uh, I think they're in the 60 to 80 person range. And what they do is they bundle gig economy work. So let's say that you just want to be a gig economy, economy worker, and you don't care if you work for Postmates, Uber, Lyft, whoever. What Steady can do is they can bundle those jobs so you can see them all in one place and you can keep all of your earnings in one place. And you can easily, you can do a ride for Uber, make a pickup for Postmates, do a job on TaskRabbit, and then hop onto Lyft. So their long-term vision, one thing that they've realized is that there is no W-2 for the gig economy. So I think they're a long ways away, but from my conversations with them, their real dreams are, can we bring the W-2 world to the gig economy? Can we make these two completely different worlds meet and provide a system where gig workers can make a sustainable living? And, you know, you kind of extrapolate that is, how does healthcare, which goes through our work, Uh, Is that something that can be integrated into for a full-time gig worker? Uh, Other benefits, 401k, things like that. So there's a lot of impact into the financial side of things and the technology side of things based on this change and how people are starting to work. 
So can you talk more about in Steady is the yep the company? How in your interactions with them or research with them, mm-hmm. which side of kind of their platform dynamic are they prioritizing? Is it working with with the Lyfts and the Ubers or the the gig drivers themselves, or maybe eventually partnering with a healthcare provider to sure. to come in and do that? So I think the the mark the benefit side of things is in the future they're not there yet (laughs) and right now they're just building this two-way marketplace and it's can we offer can we offer customer acquisition cost to uber or roadie or TaskRabbit, whoever that's less than they get from advertising so if it costs uber uh five bucks to acquire a new driver and steady can get them that driver for four dollars that's a win-win for both Steady and for Uber, because Uber will pay for that cheaper customer acquisition cost. On the other hand, you know, going back to that two-sided marketplace, they also need to entice consumers to go to them and not just be devoted only to only to li- or only to Lyft, only to Uber, and to be able to be willing to really expand outside of that. So. It's going to be interesting long-term to see if they can really build up this dynamic marketplace and they can build in these benefits and, um, you know, really grow this into a dynamic platform that can be a substitute for the W-2 worker. Awesome. So it reminds me a lot about what we talk about in your class. Yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on the trends. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, One one thing I was curious about when you mentioned talking about the W-2, if if I'm a full-time Uber driver, how do I pay my taxes? Do I do, do I declare myself? I mean, an independent contractor, or do something else, or does does Uber withhold anything from my pay that then becomes my? I use that as as my federal taxes. How, how does that how does that work? That's a great question. I have friends who have done Uber, but none of them are full time, and they just get a deposit in their Uber app that they can withdraw, and it's it's almost it's like Venmo. It's like your Venmo balance increases. So I don't think any of them have done it to the degree that they file taxes for. Um, but I'd be very curious to hear, like talk to somebody who does Uber 40 hours a week and see what that process is like for them. They need a 1099, is there something different? Um, yeah, the, the, the structure, uh, there's, there's sort of two forces here. The structure is such that you might be incentivized to evade taxes because there's no formal record. On the other hand, this is a, <laughs> an unprecedented level of tracking of your work. Absolutely. That it's very easy to see this person <laughs> did this at this time and got this much money for it, such that you, you there's a serious paper trail there. Yeah. So. What do you think about the aspects? I know in class we've talked about kind of the, the multi-homing model that you do see a lot of these drivers taking. Um, I, I think this would help drive towards that trend if you if you're giving them a platform but given some of our kind of platform yeah. dynamic conversations we've had in class what, what are your thoughts there sure one, one thing I think about is is a way for uber to attract drivers and have them drive stay on the uber app instead of switch over to Lyft is to get is to get paid better yep and I think that Lyft, that they've done they've taken those steps to try to be more attractive to drivers hey we are able to get the money to you quicker or you get an advance or whatever it is that they try to do to say we're we're the better um, app gig economy company to work for yep to get you to, to as a contractor or as a as a gig economy worker to want to just mono home with only them 
Yeah, I know one thing uh, that we're seeing lately is streaks. So if you take, if you're an Uber mm-hmm. driver and you do five, 10, 15 rides back to back to back, you'll get an extra bonus. And to that point, if you're doing those rides back to back, it means you can't switch over to Lyft or another service. Game, so that's gamification. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. To bring this back to the kind of the, the fintech side of it, how much, and maybe Ben, you had kind of interactions with this at ADP, how much pressure is this putting on the financial organizations to do all that processing and requiring you know, better technology, more staffing, all of the resources that maybe they didn't expect um, because of this instant payment model? So from what I saw at ADP, a lot of people are, it's on everybody's radar, but nobody knows how it's gonna play out yet. I mean, we're in a very early stage of the gig economy. It, it's been around, it's been commonplace maybe five years and it's been around maybe 15 years. It's relatively new. And, you know, companies like ADP and I'm sure other regulatory uh, institutions know that this is happening. They know it's going to grow. The question is how much how fast there's a lot of uncertainties there and I know that the technology side of it they're investing in it heavily because they think that you know we're going to see that consumer demand change and like I said people want their money now so it's going to be interesting to watch and see how fast that changes can the technology keep up with it can our regulatory system keep up with it and you know, right now there's just a lot of uncertainty around it. Any thoughts on the yeah, insta payment? <laughs> yeah, there's. A, I mean, what it brought up for me as far as uh, as gig economy participants and as consumers, th- people are expecting a, a very seamless experience online. Uh, so when they're doing their banking or they're doing their jobs or whatever they're doing. They want it to be. They're they're comparing that experience to every other experience they've had on their mobile. So if you're a legacy company, and you're thinking about, you know, doing some kind of digital first thinking, most companies that I've seen, especially banking, financial t- institutions that we work with, they end up, you know, basically digitizing a form and putting it online behind a login. That's technology that's been around for 25 years. That's not really first principles thinking or design thinking. And so a lot of what my company and what I do is work with banks and financial institutions to sort of transform their mindset and transform their technology to accelerate that digital first transformation. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack there because it's not just a consumer mindset that's changing, but businesses also I mean banking, if you look at traditional banking, the model, the branch model hasn't changed in over seven hundred and fifty years. Like literally, <laughs> I mean, every service, that everything, ATMs, is all, all has a legacy system, and all banks have tried to do is take that old system and try to fit it into this new box instead of trying to come up with a solution. Um, and now you're starting to see like stuff like neobanks come up, and you know they're to- totally changing the game. Um, and that's you know part of what I work with and what what I do. Yeah, for for our listeners and also me, can you please uh, define neobanks? <laughs> sure. So a neobank, uh, I would say, is a digital first bank that's available only on your mobile phone or internet-enabled device. 
um, started popping up, I would say, roughly 10 years ago. Um, they're more prevalent in the uh, European area, but now you're starting to see more and more in the U.S. Um, I've been using one since 2009, for example. Um, but uh, what my company does, Backbase, is we basically accelerate traditional banks to help them compete with these newer neobanks um, that have much lower ho overhead, um, they charge much less fees, they're much better, uh, like infinitely times better user experience. Um, so um, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a funny story. I was working with a bank uh, in Europe and working with them, and the employees of the bank actually pulled out Revolut, which is a neobank, and they were banking on that app instead of the app of their own bank. So even the employees of these companies realize that there's a much better solution out there. Interesting. What are kind of the specific areas? Are there major themes of user experiences or you know, things that maybe the neobanks pursued first that you know, more traditional banks are trying to follow? So I think some of the things are experience first thinking. So banks, and I've, I've worked with hundreds of banks, um, our company has at least their product first thinking. So they're like products, 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 this loan, this credit card, uh, this term life deposit, whatever it is, whatever financial institution, whatever they offer, their product first, which is inside out instead of experience first. And what the neobanks and the digital banks have is that they think about the experience first. So they don't think about, okay, does this person need to carry around this credit card? No, what does a person need? A person needs access to their credit, not the fact that they have a card, right? And you're seeing you're seeing that shift in mindset now with like Apple Pay and things like other companies, technology companies are starting to figure that out. Banking companies are still lagging behind. Interesting. Yeah, I just as a a wife of a previous JP Morgan employee, um, yeah, I'm getting exposed to kind of how that that line of thinking is, and oh, we're launching this product, and here's this card, and it has this artwork, and I'm like, yeah, but what does it give? What does me? it do? Like, yeah, I don't, I do care that it's metal, but right, right. other than that, like, <laughs> right, what it what is that can experience first? And I think what you said earlier about as consumers, we talked about it in a class earlier today, um, as consumers, we don't care what industry. You, Right. somebody's coming from with the, the mobile app or the digital experience they're providing us. Right. We're kind of coming all blending to the middle of, of how kind of interactions should work and scrolling and open all those kind of gestures and things. I, I, like, I'll give you another example. I just, I just bought a house a few months ago and I had to sit there and sign 43 pages with my, with my signature and the fact that this still exists in the 21st century is mind-blowing thinking that a signature which you know existed for so long is the best way to verify your identity or verify who you are when there's tons of technologies that can be much better but we're still unfortunately there's we're still stuck in this sort of legacy legacy format yeah what do you all think of this trend yeah so i think it's very cool i like you hate signing papers. <laughs> I, I got a hand cramp from it. It was like, it was so bad. I know. And, you know, one thing we talk about in class a lot is how biometrics are going to come in and how the private key, public key model is a lot more secure than a signature or right. a password. Right. So, my question is what hurdles do you see uh, for mainstream banks? To, to implement that on 
not just logging into my banking app, but also on, like you said, a housing loan? Is it just uh, is it just a thought process, or is it a knowledge gap? What do you think are the big challenges there? Yeah, I think I think it's all of the above. I mean, thought process, knowledge gap. I mean, there's you know even for a housing loan, a lot of the stuff I did, I filled out forms online and, and, and uploaded them when there could have been a, a better way. And I think it just takes that sort of digital first thinking, digital first mentality. Um, a lot of banking, the banking industry is made up of older people, um, but the majority of banking users are 35 and below. Um, most, uh, in our research, I mean, 85% of people don't go into a bank branch unless they've been called by the bank to go in. So having that legacy mindset of we need a branch and we need people to come in and do all stand in line and all this stuff that once we get rid of that mindset i think some of these solutions will come a lot will flow a lot smoother but um right now we're trying to help empower people to sort of get to that mindset is i have a follow-up question sure is there any reason that as a consumer i should rely on a standard bank over one of the neo banks or can they provide the same services? Uh, the the biggest gap right now between the traditional banks and the neo banks is the number of products and services they provide. So most neo banks only have one account, one service, but it's an exceptional quality in terms of experience that they have versus a traditional bank. So I think once that gap narrows, there's there would be no reason to stay with a traditional bank. So uh, as the maybe the old guy in the room, <laughs> I would I would rather be be you and be consulting for traditional banks than to be a, a neo bank. And the reason is that banking at its core requires scale. The basic model is you're taking a bunch of people's money, and then you're sitting on that money and you're able to do stuff with that money. You're able to lend it out, and having the money allows you to make more money. Right. So you need a certain amount of scale. So trying to become sort of a, a new agile startup as a bank is hard because you you have to get to scale. And part of the reason that banks have been around a while and they, they just acquire each other, they, they tend to just get bigger and right. bigger, bigger right. is because it's a scale-based sort of sort of model. And so I think it's, it's fantastic to, to make the existing bank's products better and more customer-focused and more outside-in and so forth. I, but I also think their position is pretty secure because of the scale effects that exist in the business. Right, absolutely. And, and one, one of the things our, our company does is we don't try to change their core technologies or core services, our stack sits on top of their core services and basically just enables those transactions to be much more fluid and much more seamless and more up-to-date, basically. Is there any worry, I think, to because banking is perhaps our most regulated industry in this country, uh, yeah. among very many <laughs> highly regulated industries, um, any hurdles you run into when, because when you were speaking about how do you make change in these banks that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years because they've been acquired and they've come with regulation with them. What hurdles do you run into in UX or in design or in new approaches with um, use of data for enabling kind of new interactions or even accessibility concerns? Kind of like what are those those big challenges in a legacy organization? Um, just, uh, yeah, a lot of legislative concerns are the biggest, I think, r regulatory concerns. Um, since we're a global company, we work with banks from all over the world, and there's much less, surprisingly, much less regulatory uh, interference in uh, in the Europe, for example. Um, but that's where we're seeing, a, we're seeing a lot of growth uh, in there. 
Latin America, um, other areas, Asia Pacific. In the U.S. primarily, um, we're focused right now on credit unions and those like second tier sort of banks because the legacy banks already are these behemoths. Like you're not going to be able to. It's like trying to turn a battleship, right? Like you're not going to be able to do it. So, but some of the smaller community banks are still small enough where they have scale, but they need to be nim- they, they need to be nimble and be able to 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 you know meet the needs of the market. So that's where we think we have the most impact, less with the big regulatory <laughs> stuff. So yeah, because yeah, I know I had a uh, a good friend from undergrad who worked for a major bank who basically spit on credit unions because he's like, you're not as regulated. You don't have to follow the same rules. You don't count for any of this. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting how each one kind of might be more agile than the other because of that. One of the, it's it's crazy though, like those, a lot of those are most in need. A lot of those user bases are most in need of mobile first and, and those sort of technologies. I remember, you know, we worked with one of the second big, I think the second biggest uh, credit union in the United States and they didn't even have a mobile app until we help them out and the 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 reviews I remember on the on the Apple store iPhone store were like woo they were like all five stars because they were comparing <laughs> it to nothing they're going right. from nothing to an actual mobile, working mobile app um, so yeah it's uh, it's interesting it's a, definitely a fun company to work for and fun industry I never worked in fintech before uh, Georgia Tech so yeah yeah kind of on that note what um we've talked about a lot of topics today that when we planned this, I honestly did not think we would talk about. And so, what do you think is next as fintech is growing and changing? What's an area that you want to keep your eye on for the future? I'm very interested in the the, the cryptocurrency mm-hmm. world. Facebook has announced Libra with the consortium of partners that they have, and that's it's a fascinating idea. It's got major geopolitical and regulatory hurdles to clear, and and I don't know that it will, but. It, if anything, it's prompted the governments to think about issuing their own cryptocurrencies so that this idea of having a very easy way to pay people through crypto isn't controlled by, by, the, by Libra. It's controlled by the, by the government so they can maintain fiscal policy and so forth. So I, I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting activity in that space, and it's something that I'm very keenly uh, interested in, seeing how it goes forward. Yeah. I think... Uh kind of piggybacking off that, but just regulation in general. I think you see legislation tends to be 20 to 50 years behind technology sometimes. Uh, And there's always that lag. And you wonder that when we have these huge banks, we have cryptocurrencies coming up, is that going to change our, is legislation going to catch up quicker? so I think that's something that's going to be interesting to watch going forward. Yeah. Yes, same thing. I mean, uh, how how are the legacy banks and their big systems going to deal with, you know, how crypto does payments, transactions, all those things, much faster and more efficient um, because it's more it's a it's a new paradigm as versus their 750 year old paradigm. Yeah. Well, last question. Uh, here at Georgia Tech, we're all about creating the next. So we always we end every podcast episode with "What are you creating next?" and it can be as big or little as you would want it to be. So um, tonight, I am creating the next what is it? Poets and Quants 
article, um, our campus correspondent series from Georgia Tech. So I'll be writing, um, it is November as we record this, writing our veteran experience um, piece where I interviewed, because that is not my experience, interviewed a lot of my wonderful classmates about their transition from the military to MBA and then beyond. So that's my assignment tonight. What are you creating next? So uh, one of the great things about my job is I get to travel all not only over the U.S., but all over the world. So I'm going to Bank of Oklahoma next week. Um, the week after, I'm going to a country called Mauritius, mm-hmm. which I actually did a paper on while I was in Sheller, <laughs> believe it or like ironically, or unironically, I don't know how, but somehow I'm going there for another bank. Um, they have very, uh, very lax fintech and financial laws, so uh, it'll be interesting to go there and check out what the scene's like there as far as finance and technology. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I have two chili cook-offs coming up. One for my girlfriend's uh, office on Thursday, and then another for our Sheller Thursday night tailgate. That's right. Uh, Go Jackets. So I need to make sure I have this recipe perfected. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll be creating a practice plan for about 25 seven-year-old basketball players. (laughs) <laughs> have them go through. That might be my favorite one yet. That we <laughs> yeah, yeah. We weren't very organized with it last week, so try to get about four to six coaches and have different stations, ball handling at one, shooting at another, defense at another, and so forth, so that we have a little Is that more like herding cats? <laughs> well, it, it, yeah, you can hurt, but if you have a plan, you can hurt them a lot better than if yeah. they're just sort of running around the court. So, Is it like your syllabus with lots of core... <laughs> course guideline like <laughs> you're gonna bring a revised yes. one to them each week uh, yeah, that's new play it. everybody <laughs> it, yes it's just who i am i'll have some principles there like yes. this is what this it's is very the, i love the, it it's very the helpful key, <laughs> the key things we're trying to do and here's what i think we should do at each of these stations stated and expectations we'll see are what, helpful to everyone we'll see what the other other <laughs> dad coaches think of this it might be it, easier it might, with, me. it might be actually easier with seven-year-olds than some georgia tech undergrads oh, i'll sure. say that i'll say that or even us we're <laughs> That being said, that does it for this uh, intersection episode where we focus on fintech. Thanks for joining us.